Welcome to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Eric Strickland, and I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, make sure that you subscribe to us on your favorite platform. We are on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, and on Google Play. Um, you know, uh, Rate us, uh, share us with your friends. We, we appreciate all of that, and uh, send any of your questions to us as well um, uh, through your favorite social media platform that you can track us down on. Uh, this week, I am really excited to be joined and have a conversation with uh, Dennis Jones, the Managing Director for the National Transportation Safety Board. Um, you know, I enjoy having conversations with him, and uh, uh, most listeners don't know, but Dennis was our, our proof of concept uh, podcast almost a year ago, and we were just making sure that this could all work. And so we're going to do, do a real one, and we're really excited about that. So I'd like to thank you for joining us, Dennis, and uh, um, you know, welcome you sort of back to the podcast. We know you're back, but... Well, thank you for having me. I did kind of want to just start with, how did Dennis Jones end up at the NTSB, you know? I know that you were a pilot and, and you have a lot of interest in that. So maybe let's chat about how you got interested in, in aviation first, you know, and, and cause I, I know, I know the story and I think it's fascinating. I always love to hear it. So, yeah. uh, cause you and I have nice conversations in the hallway and I always appreciate that. Mm, okay. Well, um, aviation is something I've been interested in from as a youth. I grew up near a small airport and airplanes were always flying over, uh, our residence. This is on Long Island, New York. Okay. So I kept looking at these machines flying over and saying, well, I would like to fly one of those things. And that eventually happened um, by um, starting to take lessons while I was still a teenager. And um, and so um, didn't have much money during those times mm -hmm. and did it by just doing odd, odd work at the airport to exchange for flight time. And that's how I was able to start my flight lessons. And um, eventually get my um, private pilot's license. Um, <laughs> the intent at the time was, one, to learn how to fly. I didn't know exactly what kind of career I was going to have with it. I was always interested in aviation, and that, that was just the starting point. <laughs> and uh, that's how it started for me as far as um, aviation is concerned, and that's flying. What, what kind of odd jobs does a teenager get in an airport? <laughs> that, uh, everything you can imagine, washing <laughs> airplanes, cutting the grass, um, you know, just kind of the old-fashioned thing. It's, it's kind of like uh, the Karate Kid. Like, they don't make sense at the time, but they eventually help out. I, I, I used to call it a summer job. You do some of this, you do some of that, you do some of that. You know, that's the kind of <laughs> that was the kind of work I did. But I, it, it um, believe it or not, um, especially when it came to washing airplanes, um, little did I know that I, I got to be very um, intimate with the aircraft, meaning that I got to be very close, yeah. looking at every rivet, every piece on it. And um, little did I know that would help me later on when I would see airplanes in pieces as yeah. an investigator. Um, so somehow I was being set up. <laughs> the powers <laughs> of the universe were already getting me ready or set to um, start um, looking at airplanes in a, in a unique kind of way. Oh, that's pretty but, cool. But, but, but by washing airplanes and being around them, um, I got to know them, you know, in their most um, uh, fundamental and, and yeah. minute forms. Well, and that's a note to all the young listeners out there. Whenever you're doing those tasks you don't want to do, they actually pay off later. Uh, so you did the, you know, you know, watching the airplanes, got your private pilot's license. Uh, not quite sure what to do. So what was your next steps? Where did well, because I um, eventually went to an aviation university, okay. which for me was Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And when I got there, um, I, um, again, that was another time of kind of uh, getting my 
sell to school on the installment plan, mm-hmm. you know, working and uh, going to school and then maybe taking some time off to work again and getting back in and uh, eventually working my way to school. Um, I initially went down to work um, <clears throat> on my bachelor's degree. Okay. Um, and also to pick up my A&P license, airframe and power plant oh, mechanic. Okay. Um, you saw that confused look in my face. I wasn't quite sure what A&P <laughs> meant. Yes, I had to um, clarify that. Um, <laughs> airframe and power plant was basically an aircraft mechanic. Okay. And um, when I was, um, once I got my pilot's license and um, where I flew, um, which was on Long Island, I was o- always over water. And for some reason, whenever you're in a small airplane and you get over the water, the engine sounds different. Oh, yeah? <laughs> no, that's probably more in my mind oh. than anything else. And I, I was like, I, I don't know this. I don't know this phenomenon. Is but, it the sound reverberations well, out the water? No, you're, you're here on the study of that because, uh, you know, I I knew how to fly the airplane, but I, I, I just said, wow, I, I don't know what's going on around me. What's going on underneath that cowling? And uh, yeah. so some of the mechanical aspects of it, I wanted to know more about it. Uh, and so um, that prompted my interest in um, getting... Um, uh, becoming a maintenance technician, okay. which is probably the more professional term to use. And um, so that's exactly what I did. So the, the degree program included getting really my cool. AMP. So, that's, so I did that and while working on my academics, so mm-hmm. working on the, on the maintenance training, which was part of the day, which is first half of the day and the second half of the day was academics. Okay. And um, so that's how I started my, um, at least my academic career. Uh, time at the uh, at school it and, makes sense to get like the mechanical part of it you know you need to know the the physics and how to fly but you also with something super technical like that you should really know how it works it surprises me i guess that you you can do them separately i think they go together really well mm-hmm. and uh, again this is kind of um probably the powers of the universe again looking out for me because one night i am later started working as a field investigator, as we call them now, I found that the skill that I used the most when I was at the scene of a crash site was my skills I learned as an aircraft mechanic. Yeah. So again, not knowing where I was headed to in life, Yeah. certainly the NTSB was not on a target at that time, but it looked like all roads were heading that way, little did I know based on the interest that I had. Well, then how did the NTSB get on your, get on your radar and your target? Since you were doing all this prep work and not realizing it. Well, um, after I, I finished up school, and uh, I actually got a job flying for a while, and then I decided to come back to work on my master's degree. Okay. And it was during that period of time is when um, the NTSB was going around college campuses looking for, um, quote, unquote, young people to come join the agency. Mm-hmm. Um, this was something um, new for them. Um, because as it is today, the workforce of the NTSB from many of the professionals just tend to be a second or third career. Yeah. And um, so we get older quicker here. And um, <laughs> back in those days. Don't tell me that. Don't tell me that. I feel <laughs> well, old enough as it is. <laughs> well, back in those days, um, for me, I, I joined, uh, eventually I joined the agency in 1979. This is when this was all happening. Um, many of the... Um, Professionals in the in the workforce um, were veterans from the Vietnam War. Okay. So um, they came in, and um, I used to hear the term "double dipping," where you can get a military retirement and a government retirement. Okay. And so, so the bottom line is this: is you had um, a lot of professionals that came in, 
at a much older age, mm-hmm. and they left relatively soon. So you maybe you got 10 or 15 years out of them at the most. Yeah. So they were trying to change that to bring some folks that they can bring in at an um, earlier age and um, keep for you know, a much longer period of time where this could be a, a long-term Makes sense. career. So it was my understanding this was the first time they actually tried this initiative. Okay. And um, so I came on the um, program as uh, essentially an intern. In those days, we call it a co-op program. Okay. And uh, I was one of the first with that. So they, that's what they did. They came on the campus. Um, I, I was familiar with the NTSB mainly because as part of my flight training, you, you become aware of what you have to do if you ever have sure, an yeah. accident. And um, so I was, uh, I was you know, cognizant of them from that point of view, but I never wanted to do business with them. Yeah. You know, I said, okay, that's that agency. I'll just, <laughs> I know I got to learn enough to get through my testing and written tests and some other things, but I want to keep those folks away from me. I don't want to have any doing with them during, yeah. <laughs> during, so that's how I kind of look at the NTSB. So when I was um, on campus um, one day walking around and I saw this uh, poster up about the NTSB coming to the campus, I'm looking at this and it was, talking about, uh, or at least it, what was written was um, what kind of background they were looking for folks. And I had always wanted a job where I could use my, um, you know, my flying skills along with my technical training. And one yeah. of the things I didn't mention that um, by the time I completed um, Riddle, in addition to getting my A&P license, I spent another two years to get my avionics okay. training. So I, I was certified as an avionics technician as well. So when I did flying, I, I kind of longed for doing some of the technical work, too. And I said, well, what kind of job can I get that I can use my flying skills but also use my technical skills? Sure. The only thing on my mind at that time was being a test pilot. So that was kind of in the back of my mind. I said, okay, maybe I can do that one of these days. <laughs> so when, when, when I looked up and I saw the NTSB poster, I said, wow. That's something I can use all my skills. Those are kind of two ends of the spectrum, test pilot or NTSB investigator. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, you get to use your background, and I had an engineering background by that time. And um, so that was the, um, you know, that was a, what attracted me to it. I said, okay, let, let me give this a try. I, I didn't know whether I was going to get selected because when they came on campus, it was a big thing. Yeah. So there was a lot of folks that showed up for the um interviews and um, they had held interviews for three days oh wow and um, I understand they interviewed close to 100 people if not more and you know I said well let me give it a try and um, so I got selected they picked four of us and so we were to um, report to Washington within like 30 days (laughs) I had never been to Washington I didn't even have enough money to get to Washington and um, so um, somehow I worked it out. We got on a Greyhound bus and went from Daytona Beach, Florida, <laughs> to Washington D.C. Didn't know where I was going to stay, yeah. and uh, that, um, that's all another story. But uh, that's, <laughs> I just showed up, and um, it was four of us that they selected. We were all from different places, but um, mainly it was first to bring us to headquarters and get us um, acclimated, mm-hmm. some orientation on what the agency was about. And um, and then we were we were assigned to a local 
office. Okay. Field office, as we called it at the time, which was at Dulles Airport. Okay. And that's when we got an opportunity to go out on field investigation. And that's where my first experience with fatal general aviation accidents okay. occurred. Um, how many how many field offices were there uh, back in 1979? Wow. Uh, so I was also going to ask, like, how many employees do you think there were back in the... The numbers the, have stayed relatively the same. Oh, yeah? Over the years. Okay. Yeah, between, you know, 390, 400. Okay. You know, it's kind of stayed the same over the years. Um, That's interesting. But we had um, roughly 10 field offices, um, some which have since closed down, but uh, if my memory served me right, um, New York, which is where I eventually uh, began my career mm -hmm. as a field investigator. We had an office in um, Atlanta, Miami, Kansas City, um, Fort Worth, Texas, Chicago, Denver, Los Angeles, Seattle, and um, Anchorage, Alaska. Excellent recall. <laughs> yeah, you, the listeners can't tell, but he, he put a little, he went to the vault on that one and, and pulled it out. That was pretty cool. That's, so everyone kind of started near headquarters at the... Um, well, as far as far this internship program. internship program. program. Uh, this was new. They, in fact, it was new for even the, um, the staff at headquarters because uh, when we showed up, they didn't quite know who we were. <laughs> uh, they'd never seen a crowd like this before. Again, it was mostly um, veterans. Mm -hmm. yeah, it was mainly, it was very much, a, at least in my perception, it was a military atmosphere yeah. at the agency when I came. So here was a bunch of you know, young kids showing up you know, in their early 20s. Um, to work as investigators, and this is this caught a lot of the staff by surprise. Yeah. Upper management knew about this because they worked it out, but um, somehow the word didn't get to the you know to the rank and file about these young folks coming in to be quote unquote investigators. investigators. And, well, it's kind of like you said, you know, a lot of people at the time and still fairly true, you know, second or third careers, and and you need a lot of skills to be an investigator, and a lot of that is yeah. practical in field, and how do you get that and you know, at that time, most of the flying was done by by the military. So I, I, I can see that it sort of makes well, sense, and it, things are changing. And you know, you were you were one of the the new guard coming in, and that was just so seventy nine. The agency just had become independent like four or five years before that. So yes, and uh, I will say that there was still a lot of folks from the um, what was known as the Civil Aeronautics Board. Yeah, and that's the organization that preceded us. And um, you have to realize that the people that I was intermingling with, besides the veterans, um, someone who was of my vintage today mm -hmm. was from the 1950s and the 1940s. I mean, so you have to realize those are the people that trained me. It's, it's, I mean, that's really cool. Uh, as just a side note, I got lost in a storage room looking for some files, and I found like some stuff from the 30s when the Department of Commerce was doing some of the mm -hmm. investigations, and like it was a one-page teletype. Like that was that was the whole report. It was just like one page typed up. You know, here's what happened, and it's so it's amazing how things changed, and and you know, taking on new people, new technologies, new skill sets, and you know, it's all part of the changing of the guard. That's just. Yeah, and this is was um, what I call I call myself a BBC person born before computers, <laughs> and, you, and you have to realize when I showed up, computers were not around at that point. Everybody was still using typewriters, um, and there was no cell phones and beepers per se. That was what they called them. It was kind of just uh, uh, appearing yeah. on the scene. 
So, so, that's, so that's if you were on duty, did you have to stay by a phone uh, <laughs> yeah. since there weren't any pagers or anything? That was that was interesting. And um, yeah, I, and I, I'll get to that point. I, <laughs> I, I, I did want to share with you is that um, eventually um, they, um, we came up for four months. Okay. For and um, so when it was all over, but they decided to keep one person, and I was the person they kept. Oh. Out of that. Out Congratulations. Of that and um, so <clears throat> I said, "Wow!" And <laughs> so I went back to school to comp- continue continue some more um, academics. It, it was a requirement that you needed to have at least four intern sessions, or what we call co-op sessions. Okay. Had to have two of them to be able to qualify to become a full-time employee. Okay. So I went back to school and then came back for another session. The next session was in New York. I okay. went. I was at the New York field office, and that's where I was. And then sh- shortly after that session, I went back to school. I actually graduated, and then I was picked up full-time. Okay. That was, and I was the first one. I was the first one of that um, <laughs> from that program. So it was kind of a learning program for the co-op but also just to test to see if you can you know if since you were you were kind of an experimental session to see if you had the skills that were needed to do this from they didn't know what they what to do with me <laughs> after i finished everything there was a lot of head scratching so what do we do with them now because yeah. he can't possibly be an investigator and um, fortunately i had developed some um you know there were some folks that were i got to know who who, who had been with me well, I did a lot of investigation yeah. work on the scene, realized I had a, some promise or potential, and <laughs> they were going to back for me. But um, it, uh, there was a period of time I didn't know whether I was going to get hired. Yeah. So after I did the two sessions, I went to school, I finished up. And then when I came back, I was put on a 120-day, um, kind of like okay. <laughs> a temporary, and for them to make a decision on what to do with me. So for that 120 days, I was kind of in abeyance before... Mm. Almost on day 118, that someone said, "Okay, we'll hire him." Right. <laughs> so it was, over, it was, yeah, it was over a year process. But and, and when I returned for the third time, and it's the third time now that 120 day kind of a temporary detail, um, I was again in New York, okay. in the New York field office, which was based at JFK Airport. So that's kind of your your home territory. Yeah, I'm from Long Island, New York, yeah. and um, that was um, certainly familiar territory for me. When with all those field offices, would you help out in other offices if they needed it, or did you did they try to kind of keep you in your we, general? We pretty area, much so stayed you... in our territory. The New York field office covered most of the um, northeast part of the country, okay. from Maine all the way down to uh, what was it, Pennsylvania? Okay, yeah, Pennsylvania. And um, that was my my beat yeah. for for at least that that part of my career. How long were you? And I know you kind of were the chief of New York for a while, but how long were you at the New York office? Okay, um, so after I got hired, which was in 1980, now okay, um, late 1980, um, <laughs> after your multiple co-op <laughs> yeah, trips, uh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, late 1980, I became full time, and um, I eventually became. Um, Again, I was a trainee, and that was that was on my credentials. They used yeah. to say "air safety investigator hyphen trainee." That was my credentials, <laughs> and um, it took about it took about another two years before that trainee was taken off yeah. my credentials. I, I remember that vividly because um, during those days, um, uh, all of our travel, incidentally, when we went to crash sites, um, we 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 went by jump seat. Oh, okay. 
all of it. And unlike today where folks get airline tickets and called, you know. Um, yeah. Um, you just would show up at travel. the airport? Yeah. Well, we worked it out. We um, we had a process where we would fly jump seat. Yeah. And why am I bringing that up? Because quite often when I would go into the cockpit and introduce myself as an NTSB person, which sometimes was quite a little shocking for some, um, <laughs> then they would see this trainee, you know, on my credentials. Yeah. Um, they says, so you're just a trainee. I says, well, yeah, that, that's what I am. Yeah. And um, so... So when the day that trainee was finally removed, it was like a holiday for me. <laughs> Long awaited that I was kind of legitimate now. Okay? Yeah. I didn't have to worry about that. But um, So that's how it started off. But during that period of time, um, and I spent eight, I'm sorry, six years in New York. Okay. During that stretch, um, I, I, I gained a lot of experience back in those days. There was approximately 3,000 accidents a year yeah unlike today which is a lot less that translated into me doing about 20 to 22 field investigation wow. a year and these were all fatal accidents yeah um ntsb regional or again field investigators in those days um only did or for the most part just did fatal general aviation accidents so that's what I did for that six-year stretch. And so that includes uh, general aviation, but also commercial aviation? Uh, mostly just general aviation. General. Um, we did do some airline incidents, but mine was, uh, and the staff in general, yeah. was um, um, fatal accidents, um, general aviation. Now, I will tell you that these field offices didn't just have aviation we had all modes of transport, well, most of the modes of transportation. Oh, wow. So in the office with me, I had colleagues from um, who were highway investigators mm-hmm. and also railroad investigators. And, and you kind of assist each other maybe? Well, um, I did get a chance to go out and, and work on some of those other modes of yeah. transportation. But that's what the field office consisted of. Okay. And, of course, it was headed by what was known as a field chief at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as aviation colleagues, I think it was about five of us or aviation, and um, that's how we work. We rotate it as far as being on call and yeah. being on duties. Now, going back to your original question about, um, you know, back in the days of just beepers, how did we handle <laughs> off-duty? Because there was no communication center or, yeah. you know, there's a, a response operations center now. There nothing like that at all. Um, the FAA, um, let me back up a little bit. Our field office was co-located with the East uh, FAA Eastern Regional Office. Okay. So we use their communication center, the FAA communi- okay. communication center, was kind of our, you know, operations center. Sure. And uh, but with very limited um, assistance to us, mm-hmm. they simply would call us up and say, "Hey, there was an accident," <laughs> and that was it. But they didn't provide any other services. Yeah. And for us, who was on call, um, the way it worked. Um, um, since we'd had no mobile phones or yeah. cell phones in those days, whoever was on call would go home first for the day. And when that person got home, they would call back to the office and says, I'm home. And that person now becomes the non-duty person. And then, you know, that's, that's <laughs> that basically is the, so the office now can shut down because you are now during the non-business hour, you're yeah. handling everything that comes to so the office. Just essentially letting people know I'm by my phone now, so yeah, I'm yeah, good yeah. To because go. again, there was no mobile phones. Yeah, 
And so we had to do it that way. And, um, and it was a little different those days because, um, you know, you couldn't venture far away. Yeah. Because a notification could be come in and it came at your house. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where you had to be. Although we did, they did eventually issue us the little beepers and that's all they did. They beeped. You yeah. didn't know where it was. All you knew, somebody wanted you. And usually that was the um, the FAA operations center or, or my boss. Yeah. Because uh, many times they would call my boss, the field chief at the time, to notify them of an accident. And then the boss would call me and says, Dennis, you got to go. Yeah. Say, where am I going? And that's how it worked. I, I just, I'm fascinated. I mean, that was a lot of communication that you had to have with your team to make sure everyone was you know, on par. It was very, very choreographed on, on how it worked. Um, now, it's still very choreographed, just in a different way. But, um, you know, have how have you seen as technology assisting with the process? Has it, you know? Oh, it, it's changed immensely. I mean, yeah. you know, again, um, computers were just now coming on board. And, mm. and in, in its infancy, it was word processors. It wasn't really computers as we know them now. They, I, I would say about a year and a half to two years into my career is when these devices started showing up. Um, prior to that, we used yellow pads to write everything, yeah. including my reports. I would write my reports and then give it to um, the admin, and the admin would type it up. Yeah. Um, so going back to your point about uh, being on call um, duty is... Um, uh, I can tell you so many times of when I'm um, not at home or driving home or wherever, um, where my beeper would go off and I have to go look for the nearest phone booth. <laughs> <laughs> you Superman? <laughs> yeah, and sometimes you might be places in some neighborhoods you probably don't want to be stopping. Yeah. <laughs> and um, But that was because you knew when you got beeped there was something important and you needed to respond as soon as possible. And you have to use your emergency yeah. quarter yeah. that you keep in your yeah. shoe. Yeah, so... <laughs> So, so what happens is you, when you were on call during non-business hours, and this includes the weekends, you pretty much stayed near home. Yeah. yeah. I'm a, I'm homebody. I'd be okay with that. <laughs> Hang out. So, you know, uh, six years at, at the New York office, mm-hmm. um, and then did you then do a stint at headquarters for a yeah, while? Yeah, what or? happened then is um, they decided to open up a field office for Washington, D.C. Okay. And that field office was going to be co-located with our headquarters. Um, in those days, our headquarters was at 800 Independence Avenue. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is, uh, when I first came on board, that's exactly where I went, 800 Independence Avenue. We were on the eighth floor. It was also the FAA's headquarters. Oh, sure. I'm seeing a theme here. <laughs> and um, so after a couple of events that took place here in the Washington, D.C. area, you have to um, be mindful of of the way the field, and again, I say field because we didn't say regional yeah. in most of those days. The way the field, came, the way it was divided is that the New York office covered everything down to, uh, I believe, Pennsylvania. Not to Maryland. Maryland okay. and Pennsylvania. Um, and then from Virginia uh, south um, to about Georgia, our Atlanta office covered, and then Florida and then the Caribbean, our Miami office covered. Okay. Why am I telling you this? <laughs> Is that the Potomac, Potomac River um, pretty much divided um, 
where um, accidents were done by our New York office okay. or our Atlanta office. So if a small airplane crashed at Dulles Airport, yeah. our Atlanta office would come up. And if an airplane crashed and um, yeah, yeah. outside the Beltway here in Maryland, <laughs> our New York office would come down. Yeah. And um, without going make, to make a long story short, there were a number of cases that occurred in that area, basically in the Beltway. Yeah. But because they were general aviation accidents, they were handled by our field office. So we would have to wait for someone to come from New York to do something that occurred inside the Beltway. Okay. <laughs> when you had this headquarters here, yeah. we had a... A uh, few accidents that were high profile, and the chairman at the time determined said, "Look, this this is not good for business. Here we are here in headquarters waiting yeah. for someone to come from New York to do a case that just happened inside the Beltway or yeah. from from Atlanta. So that's when they decided to create a Washington field office okay. to cover uh, four states. It was going to be Maryland, Virginia, Delaware, and West Virginia. Okay, and that's when I was." recruited to come down to and so you kind of that office. You, you got that one started up and got it going well i didn't start it up um i was i came in i, I was a regular investigator okay i eventually became the chief of the that chief. office okay now i know um while in that capacity you had a, a few high profile interesting investigations uh, uh for crashes in the area um do you mind sharing that story oh during during that time period wow. yeah oh a few. I think he did one on the lawn of a very famous oh, yeah, house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, yes, that's correct. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was one place known as the White House, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. Well, yes, that's correct. And by that time, um, uh, our our office in New York relocated to Parsippany, New Jersey. Oh, okay. That became what what is known as the Northeast Regional Office. It was the part of this reorganization, they were going to make the Washington Field Office a satellite office of the Northeast Regional Office. So during the course of time while I was in the field office, I became the chief, but I reported to the regional director. Okay. And um, New Jersey, Parsippany, I eventually became that regional director. Um, I just hap I was in that capacity when I happened to be in the Washington D.C. area. Oh, I've been okay. there for um, I, I don't know what brought me down there, but I was there. And um, it, late Sunday night, um, I'm going to drive back to New Jersey so I can be there to report to to the office. And uh, we're talking about one o'clock in the morning. I'm now starting to, my drive back yeah. up I-95 when. Yeah, by then we had phones. Did we have phones by then? Yeah, I think we had phones by then. <laughs> yeah, we did, because we're talking about the 90s. Um, when I got the phone call as I was driving, I, I just got outside the Beltway on I-95 um, in Maryland when my be um, my phone, um, and I <clears throat> basically they advised me that we just had a small airplane crash into the White House. <laughs> wow. <laughs> or tried to crash into the White House, let's put it that way. And but I thought someone was playing a joke. Yeah, <laughs> it was one o'clock in the morning. Someone said, "Hey, an airplane just crashed into the." It's just called Dennis. This will be funny. Yeah, and um, yeah. you know, it took me a while because it was kind of surreal. It happened that the besides the person who was calling me, it was a conference call. Um, the Secret Service was on the conference oh. call too. So someone spoke up, Mister Jones. This is real. 
I says, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, normally, I would assign someone that case. At that time, I was the regional director. Yeah. But I said, this is, I, I better handle this one right away because I wasn't really that far away. And yeah. it's one o'clock in the morning, I'm up. I just turned around and I drove to, to the White House. And uh, somehow got onto the front lawn. That's another story, but I uh, was able to eventually find my way to the scene, and yeah. uh, that's how that one started. And that one was probably—I mean, we've we talked in some other episodes about the party process and working with all of our our you know sister federal agencies and all of that. That probably had a lot of uh, a lot of people in the mix on that one too. <laughs> yes, it was. I didn't have to worry about security <laughs> at that scene. Um, this was during the. This was during. Um, President um, Clinton, okay. Bill Clinton, his administration. Um, it was in the mid '90s, and uh, I remember arriving there on scene, and then once I um, was able to convince the, the all of the, uh, the the security folks that I was legit to get to the scene, yeah. I did. And um, and amazingly, um, once I worked my way to the to the scene of the accident, a lot of people surrounding the yeah. scene, but. The word had already got to them that uh, Mr. Jones was going to be this person who was going to handle. So I arrived. It was Secret Service there, FBI, D.C. police. There yeah. were a whole network of folks there, including some other folks who I never quite figured out who they were. But they looked up and saw me and said, everybody out of the way. Mr. Jones is here. And <laughs> next thing you know, I, they gave me free reign to to do what I had to do. And uh, I was later joined that day because I was out there all night, all through the day. I was late, um, later joined by um, John Lauber, who was the board member. Oh, okay. Yeah, John Lauber came out um, to, to assist. And um, it was just a very interesting day. No, and, um, yeah. so, and I, a lot of media, because not at the scene, but I looked outside the gate. And yeah. I just, you know, I can tell this was quite getting a lot of attention it just shows that you never know what's going to happen <laughs> you know from one day to the next and you gotta you went from being a, a multiple co-op candidate and and on a temporary detail to yeah. then investigating you know a, a small plane crash under the lawn of the white house <laughs> yeah, yeah and prior to that you know I, I i said earlier that i had been doing about 22 to 25 fatal accidents a year so yeah. by that point i had done you know probably a few hundred accidents and yeah. all types of crashes, mid-air collisions, there airplanes in the middle of nowhere, mountains, and, you know, in the water, and you know, urban areas, um, all kinds. Um, so by the time this one occurred, I, I think it was pretty comfortable. Yeah. It was just a different kind of um, environment. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that I was doing. Well, that's really... That, I mean, I think that's an interesting story and an interesting uh, uh, aspect of NTSB history to to be participating in that. Um, but uh, you know, we're, I, I want to get into a couple other things because I know that you worked on a program that you were proud of around that same time as well. Um, uh, and I just said the name and I got it wrong, and now I can't remember how Safe, to say Safe Skies for Africa. <laughs> Safe Skies for Africa, and that was a program that we worked on for a long time. Uh, do you mind talking mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, around this same time, um, when I uh, was the regional director of the office in Parsippany, New Jersey, which was the Northeast Regional Office, um, I got a call from headquarters from um, our chairman, 
his name was Jim Hall, mm-hmm. um, and some others, and telling me they were taking a trip to Africa, to Johannesburg, to attend a conference, and what I would like to come along. And uh, I says, yeah. <laughs> I had never been to Africa before. And um, so next thing I know, I'm heading down to, um, to Johannesburg, South Africa, for this conference. Mm-hmm. And there was a party of about four to five of us. Um, yeah. It consisted of the chairman, his assistant, um, and, um, and two other um, management aviation investigators. And, and some FAA people, all okay. part of the team. And we went down and attended this conference. And I was amazed. I, I didn't realize the, the kind of aviation that was going on in the continent. Uh, <clears throat> most of the uh, high-level officials of Africa was at this conference. Okay. And um, you know, intermingling with them and networking with them. And I, I, I just became quite amazed. Knew nothing about yeah. what was going on in the continent. Although they had a very, very high accident rate. And that mm-hmm. was something that was featured during the course of this um, conference, which was about three days long. Okay. And uh, so on our way back from um, Johannesburg, South Africa, back home, um, which is a long trip. It was about a 15-hour trip. <laughs> um, so I was um, sharing with the chairman how impressed I was, and I told him about some of the challenges I learned on the continent. And I said, we, I said, the NTSB needs to be more involved with that part of the world. So he says, well, then you should do it. And because I was a little astonished by that because I, st- I already had a full-time job yeah. being a regional director <laughs> <laughs> up in New Jersey. That kept me busy enough. Well, next thing I know, um, I, be kind of, I became the kind of the focal person. Sure. So here I am up in New Jersey and something would come in from um, to headquarters reporting on a an accident, and they would send it my way. Yeah. So it started off me handling Africa-related matters remotely, non-travel, but then uh, that um, led its way to me actually traveling over, okay. um, responding to accidents. That became more um, prevalent when I relocated back to headquarters. Okay. Um, it was around 97, 98, that I came back to Washington, D.C. to um, handle our field operations overall. Okay. And first is um, assisting the person um, who was head of that program. Yeah. And then eventually I, I was serving in, a, in an acting capacity. So it was when I came back to Washington is when I started getting assignments, essentially as accredited representative to travel to over travel to Africa out. for some accident. And that was kind of, you know, to be the accredited representative for the United States, but also kind of help them build up their own investigation core and, and improve their programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was during this time period, again, we're now moving into the 2000s, um, the early 2000s, is um, I started, um, I traveled there quite frequently. Yeah. And during my trips, Every time I would go over and do an investigation and be there with a team that mm-hmm. I would be leading these teams, we would give an out briefing to the embassy. Okay. And the embassy, in many instances, say would tell, um, bring up the Safe Skies for Africa program. I I knew nothing about it. They said they would ask me. Said, Do you know about the Safe Skies program? I said, No, I don't. They said this information you're briefing us on would be of interest to them. Yeah. 
I said, oh, okay. So I would get back home to the, to the U.S., and I would get phone calls from the Department of Transportation, which is where the Safe Skies for Africa okay. program was being run. And um, so one thing led to another. They became, I would brief them. They said, wow, what you're learning over there is certainly going to help us. That led to an interagency agreement that I would assist their program. That's awesome. The Safe Skies for Africa, and that's how it all started. And the Safe Sky for Africa program was started in 1998. It um, uh, was for the purpose of to um, promote um, more air service between Africa and the U.S. At that time, there were no U.S. airlines flying to Africa. Oh, really? And there were only like five African airlines flying to the U.S., and you know, there's over 50 countries in Africa. Yeah. There was only five flying. And it was during that, uh, again, the, the Bill Clinton administration that they were trying to uh, improve that. Yeah. And that's what the Safe Skies for Africa for, uh, program was about. That's really cool. And, um, and they, they got me involved so I can work on some of the accident investigation yeah. programs over in Africa. I think that's really cool. And it's, again, kind of the theme of your progression, you know, you try different things, ask questions and, and, you know, take on new responsibilities and, and new challenges. And that's really cool. Uh, I've always, I thought that was really neat that you were able to do that. So you did that for a long time and we just have a couple minutes left, but uh, that you did that program for a while. And then you took on a, another role within the agency Um you know, you came on as the, uh, we were talking just before the episode started, uh, uh, January of last year, and it doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but yet you were, you became the acting managing director of, uh, the NTSB, you know, how does, how is that transition, uh, how did that transition go for you? Cause then you recently became the, as you said, they just took the acting off, kind of like the trainee thing that you had on your, <laughs> yes, on your remember badge. it didn't take as long to get the trainee off of the badge, but uh, and then became the, the managing director. How has that transition been for you? Well, that's been interesting. Um, I like to look at look at it from this point of view. If you look at the higher levels of the um, agency or, or most organization, you have the strategic level. Mm -hmm. Then kind of in the middle area, you have the operational. And then at the lower level, you have the tactical. So I've, I have been spending my career in the operational and tactical yeah. areas. Now I'm at the strategic level. That was new territory. Um, I had worked as a manager and supervisor on different levels um, over the years, but um, strategic level was brand new. Yeah. And um, that gets them more involved with, um, you know, policies, program, and, and workforce management, a number of things that, um, so yes, that's been quite different. And, um, and so getting acclimated to it um, has been fun. Yeah. Fun. So that's that's but it's challenging because <laughs> every day is different around here. Well, and you get to you get to you know play with all the modes, not play, but work with all the modes. Mm -hmm. It's fun. You get to play with them and work with them and do the different uh, activities that they do. And so you kind of branched out from aviation, but taking all those, you know, like you said, you've been working uh, tactical and operational for so long. Taking some of those skills into the strategic, I think, is is pretty important and probably helps you out every day as well. Well, you, you mentioned about the modal offices, and you're right. Um, I've been in, in the aviation lane for much of my career now um, working with all the other modes, but it's also um, some non-modal organizations mm -hmm. like our administrative office, mm -hmm. our CIO office, um, our, our research and engineering, our administrative law judges. They're all components of the man, uh, managing director's yeah. office. So 
um, my, um, my, my net has spread <laughs> quite wide and, um, of course, interacting with um, the chairman uh, yeah. essentially on a daily basis. Well, and, you know, the, the two of you are, are helping, you know, guide the agency. You know, you're, you came on board. We had the uh, chairman uh, get confirmed to be chairman and moving our way through there and, and board member changes. So there's been transition going on, and the two of you are kind of working to get the agency in. Like you said, I, and I didn't realize this, that the agency has stated about 390 to 400 people. So there's that many people and you know, continue to kind of shepherd everyone through this and, and keep going forward and, and prioritizing safety. Mm-hmm. So, I mean. Well, the technology has changed over the years. Um, you know, we just this morning, I was talking about autonomous vehicles. Yeah. Uh, it certainly was not in the jargon when I first showed up. <laughs> um, you know, autopilots, now I'm hearing that associated with cars. Yeah. I heard that with, with aircraft craft before um, you know things like cockpit resource management that was aviation now they talk about bridge resource management on a, on a, on a ship yeah and so a lot of this um, um, a, a, there's a lot of how can I say crossover of, of technology now that um, I thought was the domain of aviation but now they're appearing in across the mode now and that's been kind of exciting and some of the challenges that um, uh, that occurred uh, in those days of automation appearing in aviation. Now we're starting to see those challenges in other modes of transportation. Recorders, which again was essentially in aviation, now we're seeing recording devices on all kinds of levels yeah. in all modes of transportation. So that's been interesting to observe that. No, I, I think you're exactly right. And that's a, an excellent niche for us to fill because of all of that work in the aviation realm, some of those pieces are carrying over into the other modes, whether it's rail or highway, um, you know, recorders, different technology. Or fatigue. fatigue yeah. <laughs> you know, um, sleep apnea, that, that's applicable to all modes of transportation. Yeah. So that's what's so um, enjoyable about what I'm doing now is that this, things are universal now. It's not um, um, applicable to just one particular mode or, or yeah. two. Um, it, it's, it's far reaching now across the modes. Well, no. Well, you know, I think I, I, you know, my hall, my office is placed right in the hallway, so I get to see people when they come in because I'm right at those doors, and so I enjoy getting to to chat with you when you you come, you know, come in in the mornings, and and I know the work that you're doing, like you said, is challenging, but you seem to enjoy it. Uh, you know, our listeners couldn't see, but you did have a smile on your face as you were talking <laughs> about some of those challenges, and so you know, I I think changing things up and, and risking it. And we've talked about this in other episodes, like finding what you're interested in and kind of going for it, I think is, is key to uh, having a uh, entertaining work-life balance and cause you want to enjoy what you go do to work. And, and uh, it, it appears that you have that new challenge and that you, you like it. And so um, I, you know, I'm glad that you're here and, and able to kind of share some of your wisdom and with all of us, I know James and I um, enjoy our, our conversations and, and having all of that. So um, I really want to, to thank you, Dennis, for, for sharing your stories with us. And I want to thank our listeners uh, for joining us. Again, reminder that you can check us out. And I always have to go my notes because I was told that I got one of the uh, usernames incorrect uh, on one episode. But, you know, make sure to check us out on Twitter at NTSB, uh, on Facebook at NTSB Gov, on LinkedIn at NTSB, on Instagram at NTSB Gov. Uh, old school, you can check us out on the website at www.ntsb.gov. And so uh, I want to thank James for joining me and making sure that we all sound good and, uh, and for helping setting this all up. And my name is Eric Strickland, and I want to thank you for coming behind the scene. Thank you. Thank you.